Guys, we are week two in the book of John, um, and forewarning, I'm, I'm giddy today. Um, I've been in John for months, but each week as I get more granular with the study, like I'm just falling in love with this book more and more. It's incredible. So we have a beautiful story before us. So let's read it. I do invite you to stand up uh, for a moment while we read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's go to a wedding together, shall we? On the third day, there's a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And the master of the feast tasted the wine, now become, or the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there. For a few days. Father, you are good. Thank you for your word. Thank you for stories like these. Thank you for the precious story of the wedding at Cana. May we see the brightness of the blessing that we have in Jesus Christ today. And would you give us the eyes to see the humble beauty that is before us in these few verses? Would you give us the ears to hear your voice? Would you grant us the grace of entering deeper and deeper into your joy. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. 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 You may be seated. The Bible begins with a wedding, and the Bible ends with a wedding. And it should be no surprise to us that a wedding would be the occasion of Jesus' first sign miracle. That means a miracle, a sign that he did to reveal who he truly is. And so today we continue our time with a master practitioner of the apprenticeship practice of scripture meditation. That is soaking in, feasting on, metabolizing God's word into our very being. And as we noticed last week, John has spent over six decades chewing on the life of Jesus, chewing on the scriptures we call them the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He spent years thinking, reading, praying through them. Now John, a once angry firebrand, a blue-collar guy who worked the Sea of Galilee, he's now a gentle shepherd. He's an aged apprentice of Jesus who has something of a Yoda-like status 
among the early church community. His years of having his imagination cultivated and shaped and formed by the scriptures now find their expression in paper and pen. In the gospel that is before us today, the gospel of John. And he wrote it so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that we might have life in him, true life in him, and his name, which he says at the end of his gospel. And he's written the book brilliantly, brilliantly to do just that. And so what I'd like to do is take a quick moment to look at this beautiful architecture of the book, to look at its design. So consider this up here, um, a map to navigate the rich landscape of the gospel. Um, I believe you got one of these cards on the way in, because this will be up here just for a moment, um, but you can take this with you and hopefully it will help. Don't get overwhelmed by the sheer amount of data on this. Look at four key things, and if we look at these four key things over and over again, we'll start to know how to slot all the smaller stuff in. So, a couple things here. There's the prologue, the book of signs, the book of glory, and the epilogue. If we can break the book of John up that way, see what he's doing, it will help us out immensely. So, uh, you can see the, the prologue, the first chapter, and the epilogue, the last chapter, they match, they parallel, they work together. And then we see the two big portions of this book, the book of signs, which is chapter 2 through 12, and the book of glory, which is chapter 13 through 20, those work together, kind of like call and response. They parallel each other. And then as you go through the book of John, what you find is he writes it in such a way that by the time you get to the epilogue, he crafts it in such a way that he sends you back to the prologue to enter into the cycle again. So you are repeatedly rereading this. It is a book designed for continual meditation to see more and more the glories of who Jesus is. So, prologue, book of signs, book of glory, epilogue. Now, in the book of signs there, John curates seven miracles or signs that communicate far more than the miracle itself. They're like windows. These signs are like windows that help us to see something beyond the miracle itself. And these signs are meant to be windows into seeing who Jesus really is. Now today, we go with Jesus to the first sign. Before we move on from the slide, notice the first one is the water to wine. The last one over here, before the murder plot, is the raising of Lazarus. Just tuck that away. We'll come back to that. Okay. So, to the wedding. Jesus and his apprentices go to the city of Cana. Now, the village of Cana is just a few miles from Nazareth, from where Jesus is from, up in the region of Galilee. And it looked like this in 1894. Um, and most likely, it looked an awful like this in Jesus' day. There wasn't a ton of technological invention or explosion of growth in these areas for a long time. So this is very similar to what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. You can see it's a small rural village. It would have been a place where everyone knows everyone, right? Where the rumor mill is, is rotating and, and going on. You know, you know what Uncle, Sa Un Uncle Billy's son did. You, you know that Sally isn't behaving. Like, you just know that this is how villages work. It would have been something like this. And it's here that Jesus and his disciples and his mother go to a wedding. And it's really important for us, I think, on the front end of this, to understand what we mean when we say, they go to a wedding. A Jewish wedding is a huge deal, right? It is a big deal. It's not just a special day. It's a special occasion that 
that is rich with theology, it's rich with history, it's rich with social connections. There's a profound gravity and a profound celebration to a Jewish wedding. So we're not just talking about a, a day, right? In fact, most weddings would take up to a week to celebrate. So five to seven days for, for a wedding celebration. Like that, they know how to party, okay? They party well. It was a community event of great importance that the whole village would come out to. So here's kind of how it worked. In brief, a man and a woman would be betrothed for a year, in which time they, they lived apart, but the families would work out the dowry arrangements that the groom would pay to the bride's father. And then at the end of that period, usually in the fall, when the harvest was in, when the vintage was over, when the, the season is ripe um, with, with harvesting, um, when it was just a time of celebration in the air because all the food was coming in and there was, there was joy. It was a time when the evenings get really cool in Israel. So it's the perfect time to stay outside late, eating, drinking, laughing, and dancing. That's when you want to have a wedding, when you can stay up all night outside in the good weather with each other. So at the beginning of a wedding... In the evening, the bridegroom would accompany his friends and they would go to his betrothed's house. And then they would bring the bride back to his house or his relative's house, whether they were going to have the wedding. And they would get all ready for the wedding. And then the next day, it would be the vows, so to speak. Vows would take place and then the feasting would go on for the next five to six days. It would be a seven-day affair. In short, it was a time of intense joy. Intense joy and delight for everyone, not just the couple. So, it is at one of these over-the-top joy fests that Jesus does his first miracle, his first sign. So let's read this and let's make some observations. And guys, my main goal today is not to give you a list of a ton of things to apply. My main goal is that we would delight in the beauty in this text and we would delight in who Jesus is. Okay, so that's, that's my main goal, that we would learn how to read scriptures well to see Jesus as beautiful. So, verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. We have to stop here. By the way, we're gonna move through this slowly today, okay? If you have your notepad out and your, your pencil, like get ready, because there's gonna be a ton of stuff. So the third day, this phrase looks backwards and this phrase looks forward. So imagine I'm gonna start telling you a story about my, about my childhood and I begin with, a, with this sentence. A long time ago, in a galaxy, far, far away. You know... I'm going to bring Star Wars into this thing. Suddenly, your mind is loaded with stories from another universe, right? Your mind instantly draws up images of Luke and Solo and Leia and Vader and Boba Fett, who's popular all of a sudden, right? Well, something similar happens here in chapter 2. The phrase, on the third day, has deep resonance with the Jewish people. So like the phrase, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, you know, like that takes us back to George Lucas's storied realm. The third day would have taken Jewish readers right back to epic stories of their past. So let me call up a few of these connections. On the third day. On the third day. In Genesis chapter 22 verse 4. The story of Abraham and Isaac. 
says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place, which is Mount Moriah, from afar. What's going on? Abraham is called to take Isaac, to sacrifice him, to take the promised son up on a mountain and sacrifice him. And while he's on his way there, he saw the mountain, and that mountain is called Mount Moriah, which is also Calvary. So hold this together now. The promised son is to be sacrificed. Abraham is faithful. God provides another sacrifice, and the son survives. That's the first time we hear this. Next, Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 through 11. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. Four, on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Okay, another huge event, right? Huge event. So what happens on the third day in this story? Well, God comes down. The God of the heavens comes down to Mount Sinai in thunder and smoke and fire. And he comes down to bring his law to his people. He comes down to be with his people, to show them how it will work, that they will dwell together. God comes down to be with his people on the third day. Okay, Hosea 6, verse 2. Now we're moving forward towards uh, into the prophets. And Hosea says, on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. He's talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about God's people who have been unfaithful and entered into contracts and covenants of death with this world. Then God will come down. He will raise them up, give them new life on the third day. This is getting good, right? So good. And then Jonah, the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. Jesus himself refers back to this. The sign of Jonah. Three days dead, and then on the third, rising from the dead. So you see how all these connections would be drawn up as soon as John says, on the third day. Suddenly a wedding is now connected to all these. Why? How? We'll see. The next thing that happens though here. This third day reference also has another meaning, but it goes back to the very beginning, to Genesis. So check this out. If you read um, chapter 1 here, we see how John's seven days recall the days of creation. Now you might think, like, well, what seven days are you talking about? It just says on the third day. If you read closely, here's what happens. So let's go to the next slide. So on day 1, well, chapter 1, verse 19, is the first day of this first week of Jesus' ministry. So it marks the beginning of his ministry, okay? Then on day 2, 3, and 4, or verses 29, 20, uh, 35, and 43, we get the phrase the next day. So what John is subtly doing is he's marking out a calendar. He's marking out a week of Jesus' ministry when he steps onto the scene. So this is, this is fascinating. Verse 19 is day 1, 29 is day 2, 35 is day 3, 43 is day 4, and then it stops there. But then we get this verse on the third day. Four days plus three days equals how many days? Seven days. What day does this wedding happen on? The seventh day. It says it's the third day. But it's the seventh day in the week because he's counting. So John is doing multiple things, working at multiple levels to connect all this together. Now this is cool. 
According to ancient Jewish tradition, Adam and Eve awoke from the deep sleep, right? When, when God created the woman, they awoke from the deep sleep on the next day, the, the seventh day, and then God joined them together in union on the seventh day when they would walk with him. God and humanity, man and woman, all walking together in shalom, in peace. So on the seventh day of creation, according to ancient Hebrew tradition, there was a wedding. This is why a wedding celebration lasted how many days? Seven days. So cool. John is telling the story in this way to recall the cosmic week. To see this wedding in light of the cosmic week, the seventh day being the day of delight and rest, God walking with his people, union, divine matrimony. And remember, how does John start this book? If you were here with us last week, what are the first words in John chapter 1? In the beginning. What's he doing? Back to Genesis, right? And then the rest of chapter 1 and now into chapter 2, he's recreating the creation week in light of what Jesus is doing. It's brilliant. Somehow this wedding has to do with God's recreation of the cosmos. So good. But this phrase not only looks back, it also looks forward. As followers of Jesus who live on this side of Easter, when we think of the third day, when we read the New Testament, what do we think of with the third day? Jesus was raised on the third day. Right? So all these passages point this way to Jesus, and Jesus is the fulfillment of it. We need to learn to read the scriptures as all pointing to Jesus, fulfilled in flesh by the person and work of Jesus. So put these together now. A son sacrificed, this is Isaac, a son to be sacrificed and then coming back alive on Mount Moriah, Calvary. God coming down to dwell with his people to give them the law so that they might truly live with him and, and with others. The prophet saying God will raise his people up. Jonah who goes down and then comes up is saved to go tell the world about the love of God, those who hate God. The created order and then the resurrection of Jesus. The story is linking all of these things. The wedding of Cana is pulling all of these things together in the first few words. So good. Okay. So friends, the beauty and the multifaceted radiance of the scriptures, it's intense. May we learn to delight in it. Now, Jesus, his disciples, and his mother, they're all at this party, right? Something we should notice, by the way, um, or else it'll just zoom right by us. Jesus was invited to a party. People like to be around Jesus. And, and we do Jesus wrong when we paint him as sour and dour, right? He's just a sour and dour guy. He's serious. We kind of think he's pensive all the time, you know, rubbing his chin, staring off into the cosmic distance, you know. Jesus had fun. He was seen as somebody who brought joy. People wanted him at their parties. It's like the opposite, like when I'm on an airplane <laughs> and I'm talking with someone and we're having a good conversation and they find out I'm a pastor. They're like, like shutting down. Their language changes all of a sudden. They stop smiling. I'm like, what? Like, I can, I can have fun. I can talk with you. I, I should be marked by joy. Christians should be marked by joy, a deep and profound joy. Someday we will hear the laughter of Jesus face to face, and it will shoot through our souls, filling us with a joy unspeakable. And it will transform us inside and out. He is a Lord of laughter. All right. As the story goes on, 
there is something off. There's something wrong. Something has gone wrong. Look at verses 3 through 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, we'll get back to that. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. It's like, what in the world is this? This is glory. That's what this is. When the wine ran out, uh oh, big problem. This is no minor issue. Right? It is the bridegroom's responsibility to provide for this feast. And recall, how long is this feast supposed to last? Five to how many days? Seven days. The joyous wedding feast was about to take a shameful turn. So two things to remember here. This wine wasn't just for getting drunk. It was for joy. It was for joy. Wine in the scriptures is a symbol of joy for a glad heart. It represented God's gracious provision that came up through the dirt to feed people and bring laughter. Second, recall that this is a shame on our culture. There were certain ways of doing things that functioned like social contracts. And not providing properly for the feast was dishonoring. In fact, it was even the case that lawsuits could be brought by shamed relatives if the groom did not provide. Nothing says happily ever after like a court summons because you spoiled your own wedding party because you ran out of Merlot. But Jesus is there. He does the Jesus-y thing. He takes what is falling apart and turns it into something better than it once was. Look how this happens. Mom comes to Jesus, says, son, the wine's gone. She knows her boy's special. She knows he can do something. She has a hunch that Jesus can fix this problem that's about to derail this wedding. Her, they have no wine, is a mother's way of saying, fix this. Have you ever noticed a mom can tell you to do something by simply stating a fact? Like they have this ability to just state something and you're like, and I'm supposed to go do this, right? Then we get this very interesting response from Jesus. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, what I would give to have been there to to hear the intonation, to see the facial expressions, to see the body language. But this, this, this is going to tell us how often we misread scriptures. We often think, well, this is a derogatory thing. Jesus is fed up. He's frustrated. He doesn't want to have to deal with this. It's not his time. So he's like, woman, like, don't bother me with this. Right? That's not what's going on. There are two times when this word, um, this phrase, woman or the woman, is used in scripture. This word in, in uh, Greek, uh, gunai. There's two times. There's two people who it refers to. Do you know who those two people are? One is who? Who's the other? Go way back. Book of Genesis. Eve. Eve. Jesus is not disrespecting her. Jesus knows what's going on. And Jesus is countering her with the truth. What, what she is asking him to do is to enter into his ministry to be the snake crusher. In Genesis 3.15, God curses the serpent and says, There will be enmity between you and the seed, the offspring of... The woman. 
The other time Jesus says the woman is when he's at the cross looking at his mom. He's not disrespecting her. He is saying to the scripture readers, this is the woman. I am the seed. I'm on the cross and I'm crushing the serpent's head. All of that. It's loaded in here. Sorry about that. (laughs) I get excited. So incredible. But he is also showing who he is. Listen to this. So what he's saying is it's not like he's just simply disrespecting her. He responds to what she says. And he, he lets her into the deeper reality of what's going on. But Mary cannot use her mom card to tell him what to do. The miraculous comes at the call of his heavenly father by the power of the Spirit. He's not a wand to be used by any human being. He wants to make it clear to her that he does not operate according to a human agenda. He won't be manipulated. He operates by the power of the Spirit because of what his Father says. The Son of God is not told by any human being what to do, but he is willing to lavish grace, to bless extravagantly. She knows her Son, and so she turns and says, do whatever he says, because she knows he's full of grace. And he's full of truth and otherworldly powers within him. So the humanity of the scene is just, it's just remarkable. And do whatever he tells you. There's an application. Hey, whatever Jesus tells you, do it. Because that's the good way to go. Okay. We'll come back to the, my hour has not yet come. Story gets better. Verses 6 through 8. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled up them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they did. These six stone jars are jars for purification. <clears throat> These are what they look like. They found some of the stone purification jars. This points to the fact that the house that they're in is the house of a priest. It would only be a priest that would have jars for purification, um, and especially stone jars because they're really expensive to make. It's a piece of stone, one stone cut and carved to do this. It costs a lot of money. So the law, this points to the law of Moses, having to purify yourself, having to follow the religious rites and traditions. It was a big deal to the Jewish people. So these jars are metaphorically and literally standing for the system of Jewish law. They're big, they're weighty, they're hard to make, they're expensive, they're costly. And together, these six jars would have held between 120 and 180 gallons of water. And Jesus cryptically tells the servants to fill them up with water. Why? I mean, why? Because if he's about to turn water into wine, and we know he can, he can turn, turn one loaf and, and some fish into a whole feast, like, does he really need them to pour water in there? Like, he's the Lord of creation. He can do what he wants. But he brings them in. And it takes them some time. They don't have a hose, right? This is like a bucket brigade kind of thing going on. He says, now draw some out. Draw some out. And we know what happens, right? They do. They draw it out. They draw out some Merlot, some Cab, some Syrah, some Pinot, some Malbec, whatever. Something good. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. But look at the text. Where does this miracle happen? Look at the text. Where does it happen? It happens in between the verses. It just happens subtly, right? It, it's, it's stuck in there between seven and eight. There's no fireworks. There's no incantation of Jesus over these things. There's no ostentatious display. There's no spectacle. There's no flash. There's no bang. There's no boom. What do we have? We have a glorious miracle happening completely 
humbly, mostly unseen. Without any outward signs of glory, something glorious has happened. Heaven spilled into earth in the most humble way. Divine power working gently and lowly. So what now? What of this water and old ceremonial jars becoming wine? On we go, verses 9 through 10. When the master of the feast tasted the wine, this is the MC, right, of the night, the host. When he tasted the wine, now be, the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good stuff till now. So only the servants know about this glorious miracle, okay? They take the wine to the master of the feast. He tastes it. He's shocked. It turns out, by the way, when Jesus turns water into wine, he doesn't go like two-buck chuck, right? He goes top shelf. He goes the best of the best. And the master of the wine, the master of the party knows how these parties work, right? You always bring out the good stuff when people's palates are fresh, and then... When they get a little less uh, discerning after a couple glasses, right, then you bring out the cheaper stuff. And he says, whoa, 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 you've reversed the whole thing. Now, help me out here. Who gets the credit for this glorious thing? Who gets the credit? The bridegroom. Let me remind you, who is about to lead this whole party into shame? The bridegroom somehow. He did not provide. Something fell apart. But he ends up getting the benefit from Jesus' miracle. Come on, like that, that'll preach. That's so good. The gospel is bleeding through here, if we have eyes to see it. Now, <clears throat> it's at this point that John <clears throat> clears his throat and says, I need to tell you all something. Verses 11 through 12. He says, this thing that I just told you about, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they, they stayed there a few days. So here's what John says. He says, in this story, Jesus does his first sign. He does a miracle. He opens up a window into the reality of who he is that we all need to see. He manifested his glory. He revealed who he truly is. And then after, he and his mom and the disciples, they they go to Capernaum. In other words, this is a true story. Real people, real places, but in the midst of the, the banality of it all, heaven spills into earth. So there's our story. So let's do this. Let's let's step back for a moment. Zoom the camera out. And let's, let's draw these pieces together to let it do its work on us. How is it that the case of the miraculous wedding wine is a sign in which Jesus has manifested his glory? Well, a few things here. Jesus is the humble Messiah. It reveals to us that Jesus is also the glorious Son of God. It also reveals to us the lavish joy giver is Jesus himself. It shows us that Jesus is the true bridegroom and Jesus is the suffering servant. So let's walk through these. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited hero the scriptures promised long ago. But he's a hero that comes in poverty. He's a hero that comes 
modestly. He's a savior that works unobtrusively. He doesn't throw grand rallies of great spectacle and flashy show. He doesn't have confetti cannons. Right? It's not his way. He works mostly behind the scenes in unassuming but deeply powerful ways. He works gently. And he doesn't coerce. He woos. He draws others into the work with him. Right? He has servants fill the jars with water, inviting them into this miraculous work. He could, he could make the water appear if he wanted to. Yet he humbly engages others and he empowers others to share in his work of love. He gives it away. There's no big show to this miracle. It happens quietly in between the verses. The master of the feast doesn't even know that Jesus did it. Only the servants and Jesus is back there in the shadows while this grand party is going on. There's a humility and a meekness to the way of Jesus that works gently and non-coercively. What a savior. He's also the glorious son of God. Mary knows her son is special. She confidently says, do whatever he says because she knows he can do the things that only he can do. No one else can do them. So she knows there's something special about him. And Jesus turns this water into wine of a divine vintage. He has the power of the creator. In a moment, he does what God normally does in a year, taking water through the sky into the soil to create grapes and to wine. He takes that whole process from a year into a moment. He is the creator. He is a glorious son of God, no mere human. He's also the lavish joy giver. Right? Jesus doesn't just make replacement wine. Right? He makes the best wine. He replaces the good of the old with the best of the new. And some of us need to hear that today because we think our best days are gone by. But the glory days, the golden days, they, they came and they're gone. But Jesus replaces the good of the old with the best of the new. And how much did he make, by the way? Do you remember how many gallons we said? 120 to 180 gallons of the best wine. That party is going to be amazing. He's lavish in his joy bringing. He's overabundant. He's extravagant. He is the prodigal God, prodigious in his grace giving, excessive and profuse in his goodness to us. Wine is a symbol of joy, of gladness, delight. Psalm 104 talks about how God gives us wine to gladden our hearts and Jesus just floods us with it. He's also the true bridegroom. The bridegroom in the story has somehow failed to supply the wine and the gladness to the feast. Jesus is the true bridegroom who steps in to provide joy unspeakable. He brings a, joy, a greater joy. He brings something better than anyone else can. And see, our relationship with God is like a marriage, right? The scriptures talk about this all the time. The Bible begins with a marriage. It ends with a marriage. But it's a marriage that's gone bad because of our unfaithfulness. And it's a marriage that's gloriously restored because of Jesus' faithfulness. At one point in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 55, he says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. God of the whole earth he is called. Jesus refers to himself as a bridegroom. John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. God has come to wed his people. And this is really beautiful for us to see because in this miracle of Cana, we see that God is not some cold, distant kind of tyrant. 
He's love. God is the lover of our souls. And some of you do not have a vision for God as love because you grew up in a legalistic, harsh, cruel household or you experienced cruelty or legalism in some kind of church and it felt just cold and distant. God's the lover of your soul who unites with you for deep joy. Now, this all comes at a great cost. Jesus bringing joy comes at a great cost. He is the suffering servant. What did it cost God to heal the marriage with this unfaithful bride? Well, now we get back to those cryptic words that Jesus says to his mother. Remember, my hour has not yet come. At first reading, the first time we go through the book of John, maybe this is your first time you read that and you're like, what does that mean? Remember, the gospel is meditation literature here. And so if one keeps reading the story, they're going to see this phrase pops up over and over and over again. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, or my hour is here, my hour, my hour. What is it? What is the hour? It's the hour of his passion. It's the hour of his death, his crucifixion, and his death. Now, I've done a lot of weddings. Um, Dane's done a lot of weddings. Uh, One of the things that you know people are thinking about, because they tell you at weddings, whether they're single or married, what are they thinking about? Their wedding while they're at somebody else's wedding. They're either thinking back to their marriage, they're thinking about their wedding 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it's recalling memories. Or if they're single, they're thinking about what their wedding might be like. Or they're wondering, will I be married? And there's sorrow mixed in with it. Jesus is thinking about his wedding. Watch how this works. When Mary brings this issue of no wine to Jesus, he refers to his upcoming wedding day. He knows he will marry a bride, but he knows that the joy of his wedding will come through unspeakable suffering. To marry his bride, he will shed his blood. The shadow of the cross falls across the wedding of Cana at this point. Jesus knows that the wine he will give at his wedding is the best wine of all. The wine of his wedding is his own blood. A substitutionary sacrifice is how union with his bride will come about. And as soon as Jesus does this first sign of Cana, the seventh sign will follow. This starts a series of events in motion that will not stop until he raises Lazarus from the dead. And what happens when he raises Lazarus from the dead? There's the murder plot to kill him. He knows full well by initiating this wedding miracle It is leading him to the shedding of his blood. In this first sign, we see God the Son is a suffering God, one who suffers to be united to his love. He pays a price for us. So in this water turning to wine, Jesus is seen as the humble Messiah, the glorious Son of God, the lavish joy giver, the true bridegroom, and the suffering servant. See, what he's doing here is he's fulfilling a prophecy. Check this verse out. This next verse is so mind-blowing. Look at Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 8. I'll put it up here. Everything you know from what you just heard, listen to this in light of that. On this mountain, the mountain of the Lord, this is, that's Calvary or Zion. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food, full of marrow, of age, wined, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain 
the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. That is about Christ. That is about his cross. That is about his resurrection. That is about him wedding his people, giving us his eternal life by the power of his spirit. The wedding wine that brings true joy is the blood of Christ. Through his suffering, Jesus sets us to laughing and dancing. My aim today is that in these scriptures, by the power of the Spirit, you would see the beauty of not just the design of the scriptures, but how they point us to the beauty of their designer, Jesus Christ. That we would delight in him and enter deeper into his joy. So with that, let me draw this together and close this up. And here's how I want to do that. I want us to see how the wedding at Cana is the gospel story in miniature. Okay? Let's see how it's a microcosm of the whole history of redemption. So follow me on this train of thought. The wedding of Cana. Jesus comes into what would have been an occasion of joy, but there's something wrong. Shame and relationship disruption is threatening the joy of the union of a man and a woman. The rules of religion, the stone jars of water are not enough to bring the joy and gladden the hearts. But Jesus steps in. He works a miracle. He provides in a way no one else could. He provides the best wine. He saves the day. He does it humbly. It will cost him his life and others get the benefit from it. Okay, we got that? Step back. Big story. God creates the earth. He made the Garden of Eden a place of fruitfulness, of flourishing, and brought man and woman together to live in union with each other and him. That they might enter into shalom and peace to enjoy the delight in the rest of the seventh day. But shame and relationship break through unfaithfulness brought separation. The stone tablets of law could never be enough to fix the heart problem of man. So Jesus comes. He turns the stone jars of religion into the casks of the wine of true life. He sheds his blood to cleanse us, to change us, to wet us. He is Lord of the feast. His body is the bread. He is Lord of the wine. His blood is the wine of our salvation. Guys, the Bible is incredible. The wedding wine that brings our joy is the blood of Christ. Through his sorrow, he sets us into laughing and dancing. Let us be a people marked by a deep joy. The best is not behind you. The best is now and forever in Christ Jesus. The Bible begins with a wedding. The Bible ends with a wedding. It is fitting we see Jesus at the wedding, humbly, lavishly supplying the joy of the feast at great cost to himself. And so, Scripture gets the last word on Scripture here. Let me end with the ultimate meaning of this sign from the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Hallelujah. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord Jesus, you are our true bridegroom. Lord Jesus, thank you for um, providing the wine that would bring us great joy, though it costs you everything. So Lord, may we now approach this table of communion um, with a new and a deeper understanding of what you have done to be with your people. We love you. Amen.